This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. Blacksit Global podcast is supported in part by the generous donations of our Patreon subscribers. Our Patreon subscribers receive exclusive access to our content and so much more. So consider supporting the podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash Global. Before we jump into today's amazing episode, I've got big news to share, Blacks at Global Pod Squad. The doors are officially open to the Move Abroad Master Course. That's right. I partnered with Deirdre Amola, you remember from episode two, Balance in Bali. This is the most comprehensive course to give you the confidence and the clarity to execute your Blacksit. This course covers everything from choosing the right country, the visa process, how to make money abroad, and so much more. For listeners that enroll October 26th, you'll get not one, but two travel vouchers. So for more information, visit blacksitglobal.com slash move abroad. Now on to today's episode. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered, free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens, free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. One of the things I love most about this podcast is the opportunity to elevate and amplify the voices of Black expats who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. In this episode, not only do I get the chance to speak with an incredible and inspiring expat, but also a friend. Marsha Ganthier is a marketing executive with over 10 years in the healthcare industry. She's a Haitian American woman raised in New Jersey. Her Haitian upbringing left her feeling drawn to the Francophile part of her culture. That pull resulted in her leaving the U.S. nearly three years ago and now calls Paris, France, her home. Welcome to Blackset Global, Marsha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to sit down. We worked together for a number of years side by side in the U.S. Even though we know each other, there's still a lot of ground to cover. So let's just start at the beginning, your upbringing as a Haitian American young woman in the U.S. You know, I mean, I feel like that is definitely something that I've carried throughout my entire life, my entire experience in terms of the way I carry myself, the way, you know, and expose myself to different cultures, different foods, just being very somewhat different, you know, growing up in an American environment, but having that Haitian upbringing always led me to kind of wanting to see more. 
From a very young age, we spoke uh, French in the household. French and Creole are the two main languages spoken in Haiti. When I started school, that is when I really started to speak English and get exposed to the American culture. So for the first, I would say, five years of my life, it was living in America, but living in a kind of a, a Haitian, you know, a small Haitian community within my home. Things were very different for me, but I didn't know that they were different. I didn't know until I was exposed to kind of the American culture and the American way of life. But it was great to kind of have both. That is something that really always kind of gave me that, you know, that curiosity about different things. You know, why, what makes me different? What makes them different? What are other different cultures that I could explore? You know, my parents were very supportive of me just, you know, exploring things, anything that I wanted to do, they supported. They say, you know, Haitian parents are very strict. They want you to be a doctor, lawyer. You know, most Haitian kids that you speak to, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, my parents wanted me to do this. My parents were different in that. They said, if you want to be an artist, you can explore that. However, you know, my father was like, make sure you can make money. <laughs> so, <laughs> Smart man. So that's why I got into healthcare. So, you know, I was on the creative side of healthcare in the, in the beginning. I was kind of on the agency side, advertising and graphic design, you know, moved over into the marketing world, you know, a little bit later in my career. What I appreciated most about the way I was brought up is that I didn't feel like I couldn't, you know, do it because of what I looked like, who I was, what my background was. I always felt the support to give it a try. You know, if you wanted to do it, you go ahead and do it. We'll support you. So that was a really great thing about being brought up in that background, in the Haitian background, is that, you know, you have a family that supports you and tells you, you know, you can do anything you want and we support you no matter what. That's so awesome. That encouragement is so important to help you blossom into the woman that you are. And it sounds like to some degree that boundless pursuit led you to study abroad, right? Yeah, that was something that, you know, my parents knew from from the time I was a child that I was going to do something different. I was going to get out there. I was going to get away from New Jersey. New Jersey is great. And I'm born and raised a Jersey girl. I'll always be a Jersey girl. I'll always call New Jersey home. However, I did always feel a pull to live abroad, to live in Europe, to live in a very different environment. I was always drawn to it. It was something that just felt very natural to me. You know, I always had a very international group of friends growing up. So my parents knew from an early age. So by the time I did tell them, hey, I'm moving to Paris, it wasn't a surprise. It was a, okay, we knew that. And like I said, they supported that move. I first did a stint in school. So I went, I studied abroad for a semester in France, and then I came back and decided to kind of stay and live here. Wow. So for you, how has knowing another language unlocked opportunity for you? When I first arrived here, being able to speak French, I wasn't fluent by any means. So as I mentioned, when I was very young, we were speaking French and Creole in the, in the household. But by the time I started school, you know, preschool, kindergarten, et cetera, we switched over to English in the household because my parents, you know, wanted to speak English fluently as well. So we took it as an opportunity to just speak the language, learn the language. So by the time I reached adulthood, I wasn't speaking French as often. I did enroll in a lot of French programs, whether it was at school or extra 
extracurricular. So I maintained that throughout my life. However, when I first arrived, I could speak and understand French, but it took some time for me to get really fluent, especially in the business context. I could speak it, you know, in a restaurant or any kind of social setting, but the business context was definitely a learning curve. Luckily for me, well, I say luckily, but at the time it didn't feel <laughs> so great. I was immersed in the French language from day one. You know, when I moved to the office in Paris, I was speaking, writing emails, presenting, interacting with colleagues, all in French. So by the time I got home in the evenings, I was exhausted because to have to think and write and, and do all that in a foreign language for seven, eight hours straight is mentally and physically exhausting. So I would say for my first two to three months here, I just came home and basically fell out. <laughs> I was so oh tired. It was an advantage, but I put more pressure on myself because I said, well, I, I know this language, so I should, I should really be speaking at 100%. I did put that extra pressure on myself. I don't regret it. And, you know, those first couple of months of just being immersed and that's all I did. Now I'm able to, three years later, take a step back and enjoy what I came here for. You know, remember that, you know, I came here, yes, to work, but also to explore the life here. So it's been nice to kind of have that balance back. Oh, that's awesome. What were some of the things that you took advantage of once you got to France to improve your language fluency? That's a great question. So I did a lot of tours because I wanted to not only get to know where I was living, but also be able to compare the interaction from the business context to the actual social context. And it was a great way to meet people as well. When I came over, I, was, I came alone. I was by myself. I started to build up a network. The initial network was other expats. I also had a French teacher, so that was assigned to me with work, and I took full advantage of that because she acted as my cultural guide as well as my language person. So we would do lessons about four hours a week, and then after that, we would, sometimes we would take a weekend, and instead of a lesson, we would go out on a Saturday and explore a museum or do something, and we would do do the tour in French, and then we would talk about how much of it did I comprehend, and you know, I'd be able to ask questions. And that's kind of how I built it up over time. It was a more relaxed setting. I wasn't in that, you know, that mindset of being in, at work and having to be perfect because, you know, everybody's judging me. It was really more a casual setting. So that helped being able to relax and feel more comfortable with speaking the language in both work as well as in a casual setting. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. 
So that's great that you had that that guide to kind of like help you acclimate and also boost your competency. So let's talk about navigating the move. I would imagine that there's a lot of things that you have to prepare in order to move abroad because you're on a work visa, not a tourist visa. That's correct. So for a work visa, what are some of the requirements? I'm guessing that whole process might be in French too. So how did you navigate that process? I'm very lucky in that my company had a person supporting me throughout the process on both sides, well, more so in France and the U.S. But what that person did was help me through the process of this is, you know, how the visa works. Because you don't, you get a visa when you leave the United States to get to France, but then you have to then apply for a carte de séjour, which is essentially a card that you show at the airport or, you know, it's your ID card that says you're allowed to stay. And those have expiration dates. Those are sponsored by your company, but they last four or five years, depending on your contract with your company. So on the French side, I did have someone guiding me. So it does involve lawyers, does involve the French administration system. And that is something all on its own that you would have to do a completely other podcast for because it's so complicated. It's several months of just paperwork. You have to prepare a dossier, which has your resume, you know, a letter explaining why your talent is required. You know, it's a talent visa. So they had to kind of prove, okay, well, this person talent, we need it in France. We couldn't find this person's experience in France. So we needed to bring this American over to France in order to fill this role. So it's very vigorous because the, the French, they do support their workers, their employees. So you do have to prove why you're here and why you belong here and why they would hire you, an American, over a French person to, to fulfill the same role. It's definitely a lot of paperwork to prove and explain and make sure that you look like a good enough candidate that they would accept. So it's not just your company offers you a job and they say, here you go, come on over. There is a process of, you know, proving that you do belong there, that it's for legitimate reasons and you're going to fulfill your your contract and do the job well. So it's quite complex, but what was fortunate for me is that I did have support throughout the process with the the help of the company. I didn't even realize it was that involved. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. almost like the assumption is you apply for a job, you interview, you go through the process to become the ultimate candidate and finalist and not really understanding or being aware of all of the complexities that go on with moving from one geographic location to another. It sounds like the government has an ability to, in a sense, either overrule the company or how does that work? Yeah, it's in a sense, yeah, if they don't believe that your contract is legitimate and the company didn't do the you know, the due diligence of really looking for a talent within the country. I haven't heard stories of it happening, but it's completely possible just based on how it works, having to submit a dossier, wait for them to approve it, and then they send you a message saying, okay, you have an appointment, you can come and pick up your identification card. And that's a, a three month process. So after I arrived, I was basically just on a visa for three months until I actually got my 
ID stamp that said, okay, you're legitimate, you can stay. So you are, in a sense, on trial in the beginning. So even though you decide, okay, I'm picking up my life, I'm, you know, ending my life in New Jersey and restarting my, my life in Paris, you can make that decision and do all the moves. And you just really never know until you get that final ID, that stamp of approval from the government. Wow, I had no idea. Let's talk about the office environment. What, in your opinion, are the key differences you've experienced as a Black woman in corporate America in the U.S. versus being in Europe? Yeah, it's very different. I was actually not prepared for the cultural shock that I experienced when I moved here. I knew about the French and, you know, they're, they tend to be arrogant and, you know, kind of tell you in your face if they don't approve of something. And that's fine. You know, you develop a thick skin and you kind of roll with it. However, in the office, it's very different. There is kind of a hierarchy. And for example, I could compare how I interacted with my manager in the U.S. It was more casual. You know, we collaborated on things. He valued my opinion. We talked about things and, you know, he said, okay, I trust you, run with it. In France, the decision is made by your manager and you're, you're essentially just saying, okay, and then executing it. You know, that was one of the, the biggest changes that I had to kind of navigate through. And of course, he understood that I'm American and I have a different way of working. So we got to a happy medium. And I said, well, I'm not really here to execute ideas. I'm here to bring my experience and background from the U.S. and see what are some things that we can ultimately do in France that'll improve. That's why you you take a new job, you take a new role, essentially. So we eventually got to a happy medium, but that was definitely something uh, we had to work through in the beginning. Also, the collaboration with team members. One of the things I prided myself on and the way I worked really well with my colleagues in the U.S. is that we collaborated. We were team members. We valued each other's ideas. It works very different in France. And when I first started interacting with my French colleagues, it's not about a collaboration. It's a debate. People go and do, you know, their own thing, and then they come back and they want to show their contribution. It's not a team effort. It's individual efforts that are praised. So that was another adjustment coming from the U.S. culture where everybody's working side by side. In France, everybody essentially works in their silos. They come together if it's a group project, but everybody wants their individual praise, their approval from their leader to say, okay, I see what you did and I approve or disapprove. So that was another interesting cultural adjustment that I had to make. Uh, a third adjustment I had to make was being a manager to French colleagues. How do I give feedback? In America, you give feedback a certain way, you're very positive. They train you, okay, well, you tell the person all the positive things they did first, and then you give them, you know, kind of one or two negative things or, you know, areas of, of improvement. We tend to spin things in a very positive way in the U.S. In France, it's very direct and it's very negative. It's, it's true. They're not worried about your feelings. They're really worried about results. So you didn't do this right. Never mind what you did do right. You didn't do this right. Make sure that you fix this or you improve this. You need to work on this. So I had to adjust to receiving feedback that way from my manager. And I also had to adjust 
with how my teammates were expecting feedback from me. You know, initially I kind of said, well, I'm American. I'm never going to be that direct. However, I learned that if I didn't give it to them directly, they really never understood. They came away from a meeting thinking, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Everything she said was positive. There's definitely learning how to adapt in a very different environment from a cultural perspective in the workplace. But you grow, you learn, you stay true to yourself. That's one belief that I had and I I stuck with. I said, I'm still going to be me. I'm still going to leverage all of the experience that I've gotten working in a, a U.S. environment. I'm just going to adjust and kind of blend the two and, and see where I can come up with something that, that works well for me, but also works well for the people that I'm working with. So, you know, I'm still getting there. I would say after, you know, two and a half, three years, you're always going to get to a point where you're like, oh, I thought we got it. I thought we hit this great stride and something shifts and you, you start from zero, but it's, it's getting better. I was never looking to come over here and propel my career and become CEO or, you know, the general manager, but I was looking for a way to enhance my career, enhance my experience, learn how do you market to a culture that's different from your own? How do you learn about rules and processes, new regulatory environment? things that are changing, you know, pretty rapidly adapting to that. So for me, it wasn't about, okay, I'm going to come here and advance my career up the ladder. It's really more, I'm going to expand on my experience and eventually take that to the next level. Where that could be, I don't know. I could stay in France or I could come back in the U.S. You know, the opportunities are open, but it's different. It's not more here or less there. It's just different. And I think it's an individual thing how you want to approach it. It's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of it that way. You know, understanding that it's not an apples to oranges comparison. So we're going to switch gears for a bit. So Paris is the city of lights. What do you love most about living in Paris? What I love the most is just being able to take a walk and looking up and saying, wow, I live in a beautiful city. I mean, it sounds very simple, but it's really the thing that motivates me, that inspires me every day when I go for walks and I can just look up and see beautiful things. I love the culture. I love the the food. I love being able to hop on a train and be somewhere else in 30 minutes, you know, outside of Paris and explore different parts of France. I love being able to hop on a plane and be in Spain in under two hours or go to London. There's so many opportunities just from kind of sitting in a central place like Paris, it's very right for having a a new experience every month if you want to. When I first moved, I would just pick a place once a month and say, okay, this is where I'm going. Look it up, figure it out, Google it. How do I, you know, how do I take the train here? And little by little, I started getting comfortable with just exploring and traveling on my own. And that's been um, a really great experience for me and something I'll always treasure just being able to see so much in a very short period of time. 
it sounds like it's enabled you to be a global dweller and have all of these amazing experiences to put in your travel book. For me, if I travel two hours by car, I end up in the Jersey Shore or by plane in Atlanta. So for you to go two hours and end up in Spain or some other wonderful country in Europe is just incredible what the unlock is. I'm so happy for you. We talked about in the beginning being a Haitian American and that foundation culturally. How have you been able to stay true to your roots as a Haitian woman in Paris? Have you found a community there? Let's talk about community a bit. I love that question because it's something that I've really uh, been able to really grab onto and explore a lot more, especially this year, considering everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. There is a movement actually here in Paris because the racism that exists, uh, exists everywhere and it does exist in Europe. It's different. It's veiled in a, in a very different way, but you do still experience it. What I started to do is go and explore parts of Paris, a place called Little Africa, which is not very far. It's uh, kind of on the outskirts of Paris, but it's still part of Paris. And what's been nice about that is it's not just African countries that are represented. Caribbean countries are represented there. A lot of Haitians, either they go to Canada, they go to New York, or they move to Paris because those are the places where they're going to be able to speak their language. I knew that there was a Haitian community here. I did find it. It took some time, but finally got over there and met a couple of Haitian women who invited me to their church. There's a few Haitian restaurants that I've explored. The food from home is something that I've been really grateful and appreciative that I've been able to find because as good as a French cuisine is, you do miss fried plantains and the rice and beans, the spiced chicken and things that I grew up eating. You don't get that at a French restaurant. So you got to go a little <laughs> bit further out or you got to find, you know, the, the ingredients and cook it yourself. So I've been really fortunate that I've been able to do both. I did that in New Jersey. It's been nice to come here and feel that there is diversity here and I'm able to find things that remind me of home. And home meaning, you know, the Haitian aspect of my home. So that's been really nice. So sometimes some of the conversations I've had with people, they either feel like, I'm glad I'm not in the U.S. right now, or gosh, I feel like I should be there or wish I were there. And there's a feeling of disconnect. So it may not apply to you, but I was just curious. I think I was probably the the latter. You know, I, I feel like I wish I could be home. New Jersey will always be home to me. You know, I have a brother and as a black man, I worry about him. I've worried about him his entire life. The fact that, you know, it's really centered around that, even though women are discriminated against and brutalized too, I do worry about him driving around as a black man and making sure that he's not going to be an unwilling victim because he's, you know, innocently driving in his car or parked in his own driveway. Those things have happened, you know, being in your own driveway and having a police car pull up to you. Those are the things that kind of make me feel like I wish I was home. I'm doing what I can here by participating in protests here and getting myself more educated because I'll never pretend to know everything. It's nice that it's so amplified here, so I don't feel like I'm completely missing out, but I do wish that I could kind of be in both places. 
equally in both places in the U.S. as well as France, but I'm doing what I can here and kind of aligning myself with organizations. There's Bakers Against Racism, which was really a great event, and I loved it. It's something that actually started in New York, and then they brought it to Paris following Instagram handles such as Little Africa, where they are trying to create that awareness and showing that the immigrant population here, they're enriching France and Paris. They're not bringing it down. So giving people the opportunity to see more and learn more. It's been hard, but it's, it's also been really nice to be here as well. So as we start to close out, what do you think the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself during your time in France? If I could sum it up in one word, I would say resilience. You do experience a lot of setbacks and adversity. You have to be resilient. You have to keep going. Even the journey to get here wasn't an easy one. Over in the U.S., I had to really prove, even though I was a good employee and, you know, I had a lot of people supporting me to make this move, I still had to prove that this wasn't just a a fluke that I just wanted to get a job in Paris because I wanted to, you know, walk down the Champs-Élysées eating a croissant every day. It wasn't just this girl just wanting to live in Paris and making the job pay for it. So the journey to get here, it took two and a half years of interviewing and networking and meeting with my mentor and all the work that you have to do, sometimes just to get a job, just to get a promotion. I had to do that to land that job in France. So I had to have a lot of resilience there because there were times where I just, I felt like giving up and I had just about given up when I finally got the call and said, oh, we're going to make you an offer. And I said, really? I didn't even think I had the job. (laughs) They never called me to say that I had the job. Meanwhile, they were preparing the offer. And, you know, it wasn't until two months after my last interview that I get a meeting on my calendar while I was on vacation. I was staying at my mom's house because, you know, you want to go home and and wallow in self-pity and have your mom take care of you when you you feel like, oh, it's over and my dream is never going to, you know, be realized. I get a conference meeting on my calendar saying, oh, we'd like to discuss the offer package with you. I said, for what job? (laughs) No idea. So anyway, so that was, you know, part one of the journey. And then kind of the whole trying to transition my job over to France. And that was, you know, a couple of different moving parts. So it was the resilience of being in an office environment where I was rejected immediately because I was foreign to them and they didn't understand why I was there. It was, you know, just getting to know this new culture, even though I had been kind of immersed in the Francophile culture, which with things that I did in the U.S., it wasn't just my being in a Haitian household, because that's a very different culture from the French. It was things like uh, being part of the French uh, Institute in New York and New Jersey, where I interacted with French people all the time in those environments. But even that didn't prepare me for the the cultural shock that I experienced when I moved here. So that was some resilience. Um, There was a lot of setback in getting my paperwork done on time, finding a place to live, uh, you know, everything. It wasn't an easy road. It was every time I kind of had to hit a new milestone, there were a lot of things that were kind of pushing me back and making me uh, take steps backwards. So I would say you have to be resilient, you have to be patient, you have to 
really remind yourself why you're doing it in the first place so you don't give up and you just have to kind of go with it and say look I'm doing this for a reason. I'm going to make it work no matter what. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be great. But in the end, it's something that I'm doing for me. And that's kind of what's helped me kind of get through and kind of keep going and keep my chin up. You summed everything up perfectly. So for me, as I get to, you know, start to lay the foundation for my Black Sit in 2023, what piece of advice would you have for me or people like me who are considering or have already decided that a future abroad is an opportunity they want to pursue? The best advice I can give you is to stay true to yourself, stay true to your vision. Don't compromise or settle because somebody tells you that you can't or you don't deserve to. I know you and I know this has been a passion of yours for a long time. So I would say keep keep going, keep doing the research and the work and, and just make sure that it, it still feels good for you, you know, in 2023 and, and keep going. Don't let anybody hold you back. Awesome. And on that note, we are good. Thank you so much, Marsha, for being a guest on Blacksit Global. I have enjoyed catching up with you. And I mean, you dropped some serious nuggets on everything from, you know, embracing the language, the culture, overcoming adversity and challenge. And also, I mean, the common thread for me and a source of inspiration is that determination and resiliency. So I took a lot away from our chat. I hope it inspires and ignites that passion and curiosity in all of our listeners. And I look forward to seeing what's next for you. Awesome. Thank you, Krishan. This has been great. I'm so excited that you're doing this. Um, I think this is an important conversation to be having and I'm happy to help and I hope somebody gets inspired from this. Thank you for listening to the Blacksit Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blacksitglobal.com. Has this episode left you feeling inspired to begin your journey, but not quite sure where to start? Download our free guide with the top five questions you need to ask before planning your Blacksit. You can find that under the resources tab of our website. Remember, it's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com resources. That's blacksitglobal.com resources.